Welcome to Clabrity, hosted by me, Nabby McCannum. And now featuring 50% more wealth. I'd like to welcome you all to another life-changing episode of Clabrity. We haven't decided on a new format yet, but we have conducted a few more interviews. Will went off on his own and broke about every convention we've established. He interviewed the man, he did it remotely, and the subject matter is extremely nerdy. As always, you can reach us on Twitter at M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M. That's at McCannum. And if you feel like chatting, you can reach me via email, feedback at ClarityLarry.com. But right now, I gotta run through some things with Will. So, Will. Hey, Larry. Part of the premise of my, I mean, our show, is that we clearly define terms so we're on the same page when we have a discussion. Throughout your interview, you say things like DM, GM, min-maxer, and murder hobo. I have no idea what you're talking about. Will, you didn't just drop the ball. You sandlotted it into a yard with an angry dog. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Why don't we take a moment to define those terms? For starters, the interview subject, Brandon, has created a world for tabletop gaming that can expand into novels, films, everything. The genre he created is called Afropunk, but to understand that, I think we need to know what Afrofuturism is. I agree. I think that's a good foundation. Jamie Brodnax, in an article from the Huffington Post, wrote, The term Afrofuturism was conceived in an essay published in 1993 by white author Mark Deary, titled Black to the Future. Deary laid out the questions driving the philosophy of Afrofuturism. Can a community whose past has been deliberately rubbed out and whose energies have subsequently been consumed by the search for legible traces of its history imagine possible futures? Furthermore, isn't the unreal estate of the future already owned by the technocrats, futurologists, streamliners, and set designers white to a man who have engineered our collective fantasies. What does any of that mean? I think what it's getting at is so much of fantasy, science fiction, and related genres have such a coded history of white identity and white perspective that they've excluded entire groups of people. And what Afrofuturism aims to achieve is to prove that white people do not have a monopoly on that genre. And I think with Swordsfall, Brandon is achieving that same goal. Okay, I think I'm starting to get it. How about min-maxing? Min-maxing is most commonly used in the context of role-playing games. From UrbanDictionary.com, it refers to the act of designing a character in such a way that one minimizes its weaknesses and maximizes its strengths. Part of the point of these role-playing games is to have a collaborative experience. The person running the game isn't trying to beat the players, so when the players approach the game in a combative way, that can be a problematic approach. It also tends to downplay the aspects of role-playing. They're not totally exclusive, but a min-maxer is typically more about results and less focused on immersion. All right, all right. How about DM or GM? Those are relatively synonymous. DM, or Dungeon Master, is the game master specifically in Dungeons & Dragons. This person conducts the game kind of like a director. They make rulings, They progress the narrative, and they control all the non-player characters, or NPCs. And the last one, Murder Hobo. 
<laughs> this one refers to a player or players in a tabletop role-playing game who have no real base of operations and primarily wander around killing and looting anything they come across. It's a derogatory term that implies that the players are not interacting with the game's world in good faith. That said, it's not always the player's fault. Sometimes the DM or GM haven't done a good job of getting the players invested in the game or haven't shown the consequences of doing nefarious things. All right, I think I'm ready now. Let's jump into this interview. First of all, thank you so much for doing this interview. I appreciate it. No problem. Very welcome. I'd like to introduce Brandon, or his alias to call. He's the author and creator of Swordsfall. Before we get into the details of that, can you share a bit about who you are? I like to consider myself like an omni-nerd. Like I'm into comics and games and anime, have been all my life, philosophy major. And over time, I kind of noticed that obviously there's not a lot of black characters and a lot of properties. And things get better, but it was never something that you see a lot and i saw black panther and i think like a lot of people especially a lot of black people i had like a very versatile experience to it and it, it sort of made me think that okay if there's things that you want to see maybe you just have to be a part of it that's great properties like that had existed i mean black panther the comic had existed for decades right oh yeah absolutely and especially with like the revival of it through Tanahas kote but there was something about the movie that just hit home. Usually if things are changing or being more progressive, you see it in comics first, even if it's maybe not socially acceptable. Like you've seen gay characters in comics long before it was something that people were openly about. While having Black Panther's comic was great, it just didn't feel like it had that mainstream effect, you know, not until you sit down in a movie theater with people who have never seen comics, you know, things like that. And they're all having this visceral experience. There was something particularly about the movie and everything that spun from it that was just different. I totally agree. And I think you could make some comparisons to Game of Thrones based off of the book, which was popular, but by no means as popular as HBO made the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. To me, what's fascinating is when a property like that has been kind of marginalized and then becomes front and center main stage. How do you think Black Panther, the movie doing so well, has affected Afrofuturism, or any of these more diverse projects? Well, I feel in a big way it takes them for being niche into something that is in everybody's mind. It's one thing to say something like Afropunk, which is what Swordsfall is, but it's hard to say, okay, what is Afropunk? Because there's really no examples. So when you say it, it doesn't, nothing comes into your mind. But if I say cyberpunk, you have so many things to think about. Obviously, things like Blade Runner comes to mind very quickly. There's just something about when you put a visual representation on a screen, along with actors, along with music, that just makes it alive. Because before that, in a comic or a book, it only exists in your mind, in your imagination, which is great for the reader, but you inevitably just have it to where you have a marginalized creator connects with a marginalized reader because that's that imagination scale. And when you bring it to a movie, just by process of having to make it a movie, you kind of have to make it to where it's more inviting in a visual appeal sense, but you can keep the same message. 
So something like Black Panther with the soundtrack not just being a typical superhero soundtrack being produced by Kendrick Lamar, who's, you know, one of the greatest rappers around. So it was a very much a feeling of bringing everything into the now. And I think when you start doing that with these niche sort of genres, it takes it from being an outsider game to an insider game. And a lot of the same way it is with comics, you know, because before Iron Man, I felt like any comic book fan before the movies would have been kind of like, uh, Iron Man, yeah, Thor. Uh, look, it was a lot of B-tier stuff, but putting it in a movie and having an actor with charisma just brings it to another level. So when you start doing that with those genres, and that's what Black Panther did, it, it kind of put a look and a feel and a sound to something that was only really an idea and something that was pushed around among the Black community. So now... Especially like when I talk about Swordsfall, it's easy for me to answer the question that people inevitably ask, which is, oh, what's it about? And now I can go, oh, think of Game of Thrones meets Black Panther. And they all go, oh, that sounds cool. I didn't tell them a thing about it, you know, <laughs> but they've yeah. seen both of those things and they mix them together and they get some idea in their head and it's enough for them to want it. And that is in itself the power of movies. It puts that idea in your head and you just can't get around that, you know? That's a great way to put it. And as you were mentioning, the collaboration on Black Panther especially was pretty amazing. The cast, crew, costumes, it was really inclusive in all facets, which is extremely rare. And also incredibly well-researched. And I think that's a thing that if you're just a casual movie guy, you went and you saw Black Panther once, you might not have known. But if you sit down and you really start digging into it, they did so much behind the scenes world building that a, it laments to me that now that I'm a writer, I realize how much world building never gets seen by the public. I'm a little sad about that. <laughs> but they really did a good job of going in and taking different African cultures and taking parts of their dress and putting it into those characters. So it wasn't just something random that a costume designer came up with. It was literally someone sat down and did research and picked out the elements of Pusa and these different distinct tribes and gave that feel to Black Panther. So you may not have known what you were seeing, but in a sense, you were seeing Afrocentricism because it brought those different cultures together under that roof. But it doesn't have to tell you that. You don't have to know that, but you get this feel. Do you think that could have been accomplished with a non-diverse cast? Or is that just by definition appropriation? Well, it's not so much appropriation thing as I think that sometimes it's a lived experience. <laughs> There's a post going around Twitter, which I think is a classic example and it's some company, like an esports company, put out a dress. And it was like addressed to female gamers. And it was like, the female gamers, we finally get what you want. Polyester. And it's so tone deaf. Mm. Yeah, as, as a guy, I just knew when I saw that, I was like, oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, it was just dragging in it. And someone asked, you clearly do not have a woman on staff during design. And the Twitter account literally was like, yeah, that's true. And it's that sort of thing. Like, there's something about the live experience that you just can't borrow. So if anything, that's often why you hear them say diversity matters, because it only takes one woman to be there to be like, whoa, hey, that's a terrible idea. Why would you do that? So in a way, Black Panther had to be all black, not necessarily because of appropriation, but there's elements to a culture that you can't appreciate from the outside. The inside has to show it to you. And then once you see it, then, you know, it's appropriate to basically be like, oh, okay, I get it. And that's always the problem with culture preparation. It's never that it's taking. It's that you're taking chunks of it without understanding the context of it. That's well said. And, uh, sorry, I cut you off. 
Please continue. No, you're good. No, that was it. <laughs> okay. There's a slight delay. So it's a little hard for me to gauge when you're naturally ending or if there's just a little pause. I'll try not to step on you too much. <laughs> no, I understand. For me, I'm a white man. So obviously a lot of media has centered around that for a long time. And I think it's wonderful seeing different perspectives. And like you're saying, it really adds a perspective that was missing, even when attempts were made to be inclusive. Can you think of any examples prior to Black Panther or anything else where it attempted to be diverse and had good intentions, but really did more damage than helped? Practically everything. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that sticks out in my mind is something like Blade. I think if you were to take Blade as a character, like the Wesley Snipes version, it was definitely a character that like resonated a bit in the Black community, but they put it out so that he was like the singular Black character in the movie. And that's always the issue. Diversity is often treated as like a pick and choose, like a menu. It's default white, but oh, we're going to be diverse. So we'll pick a number eight to get the Black special. And then Mm -hmm. we'll add in the plunky Asian character. You know, it's a menu choice. And I think when you're on the majority side, you don't really see how annoying that is. But when you're a minority, especially like Black, you see this stuff so often that it's not new to you. It's new to them. To you, it's the 18th time you've seen the same character and you're just over it. It's this weird thing where there's a lot of attempts that were good on their face. But like I said before, when you don't have someone from that group there, you will inevitably always fail because you just won't know the inside struggle because some stuff we don't talk about. Everybody's got that thing that happened to them that no one's going to know about except the one or two people around them. And culture is like the same thing. There's a ton of really good examples where it's like, I'd almost like to see it go back and get rebooted with a Black director. Like, Blade, always a fan of, even though, like, it gets weird in some of the stories, you know? Mm -hmm. Steel, ridiculous story, but, like, gotta love Shaq in that movie. So, yeah, it's like, I'd like to see that go back. Like, run it back in, like, a little bit less 90s ridiculousness. There's a lot of little stuff like that, where it's like, you were close, but the parts you filled were so bad that it was like, ah, can't overlook that. Well, you don't have to. And I think we're now in an era where we're calling some people to task, which I think is completely important. It really is. That helps people like me be a little more sensitive to it, where I have a big focus on gender equality and looking at movies through that lens where are these female characters just there to reinforce the male characters? Do they have any purpose other than that? Things of that nature are fascinating to me. It really is. And I'm a cis male myself, so it's definitely something that I find having to stay constantly vigilant about. I've been lucky enough in my life that I've just somehow always had more female friends than male friends. So I've been front row into plenty of patriarchy and just male BS. And so when I write, it's something I keep in my mind because I have a lot of female friends and I want to be able to hand in my story. And then not to be like, oh, yeah, that was cool. Like, I want them to be like, oh, yeah, like, and really get into it and live that. And you can't do that without really opening yourself up to the fact that it doesn't matter how nice you are or how well you think you are. There is some level of racism, sexism that you have because it's built into our culture. And I think that people often want to avoid that because it makes them feel bad rather than being like, okay, I have this, but I also have the ability to get away from that. And it just starts with being cognizant of female minorities. They're also people. Like, it's a basic thing. We have a tendency to think about people in a nutshell because it's hard to think about a total person. Obviously, as a philosophy guy, this is something (laughs) I'm super into, and this is kind of what I bring into Swordsfall. But I think about it in terms of if I was to think about 
a character that I was going to write. I try really hard to never put in the parts that don't matter. Most of the time, the gender doesn't really matter for the character. Their gender orientation usually doesn't matter. And as far as culture or race, things like that should really matter about the background of the character or the context of the story. You shouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I should make this character that to be that verse. It should be like, okay, in my world, what do I have to pick from? And in your world, if you don't have diversity, then that's your problem. You can't pull a single character out. You have to do some basic world building. You got to move some stuff around. It's hard, but it's the things that people have to do to get to that acceptance and then be willing to be like, hey, send your story to literally other POC and minorities and actually be like, hey, is this something that you feel good about, too? Because most people nowadays will be honest. I feel privileged enough to have really, really honest friends that have been like, hey, what do you think about that? And if I've already had them be like, oh, nah, mm -mm. I'm like, OK, I see what you're saying. I didn't even realize I had that bias. X. And you don't have to feel bad about it. You just fix it. And that's it. Like, the key there is listen and be receptive. Don't just ask for advice and then don't do anything about it. You actually have to take that feedback into account. And a lot of it just has to go with taking the guilt out of it. There was a, a post on Twitter. I guess I won't name names. I don't know docs and any of that stuff. But I was trying to give a kudos to another content creator and I misgendered them. And I'm usually really good about that, but it was just so blah and I missed it. And someone else had to DM me and be like, you misgendered them. And oh, I was so embarrassed. Like I felt right. Like, you know, it's the internet. Like no one sees me. I could have just played it off, but like that really hurt. And there's always that instinct to defend yourself. Like, oh, well, I was on my phone and I didn't think about it. Oh, you know, and I had to stop and be like, nope, you specifically said that person and you specifically didn't use the right pronoun. You didn't even have to, but you did it and you did it wrong. Cool. Suck it up. Don't like overly apologize because that makes it about you. You fucked up. You move on. And it's just that sort of thing. It's hard, but it's human. Wonderfully said. And this is a very new thing, at least for me. But the idea of they, them, he, she, the pronouns, it's very new to a lot of people. And I think they kind of walk on eggshells around that issue. You got to embrace it and you've got to understand what you're saying affects other people. And especially in the context of English, because one thing I've come across as I write more and more, you're having to like reinforce English rules. There's always this voice in my head and I can almost hear it from like when you're in grade school where you have to use the correct pronoun based on the person, you know. So if you're talking about a girl, you better use her because if not, you're not using the correct one. So it's like I always have this thing in my head where I'm like, who am I talking about? Cool. Correct. And now I have to be like, wait, no, not just broad gender who am I talking about as a person? And it's weird because English just makes you want to be quick about it. He, her, if it's a group, them, that's it. And I still struggle with that. It's one of those things where I don't have a personal ethos issue with it, don't care. But the writer in me goes, ah, it's not a group. Why are you putting they, them? And you're like, because that's what we do. So we're actually kind of at a point where I think we have to be honest that we might have to start tweaking English. We really do need a gender neutral pronoun that's not they, them, because I think that's going to be the thing we was a hard time with. English was not prepared for being diverse. <laughs> I agree. It's not as gendered as, say, French or Spanish, but it still has aspects of that. And to me, they and one are kind of stripped away. There's no warmth or anything. It doesn't sound personal at all. I agree with you. I think we need a new word for that. And I hope some people come up with it soon. I think that's what gets me, too, is because it's like a almost an honorific sort of thing. 
I have zero issue with they, them, but I almost feel like I'm taking away something from them. And I know that has nothing to do with me if that's what they want. Sure. But like, I really wish I had a way to address someone that was respectful in a non-binary way. But then are you getting into the trap of trying to put someone in the box? And that's where like as a philosophy guy, I find myself in my own catch me too. Of, are you trying to adjust that because it's comfortable for you? Or is that actually a language thing that could help people? Meh. Being an ally, not making it about yourself and making it ally theatership, it's tough. I've had to read articles and really stop. Am I writing this to make people give me some internet cookies and thank me for being such a generous cis white male? Does someone else need to see or hear this? Which is fair. And while I can't obviously give my opinion on what the non-binary community thinks about it, as experiences as a Black guy, I can say that I find myself usually wishing that people tried more and failed than not trying at all. In my own life, when I think about it, usually the issue has been when other people have been apathetic. When good people have been in a situation where they find themselves unable to act, that's usually when shit really sucks. There's always the issue of the llama danger or the propaganda. But there's just something about the person who thinks they're totally great, totally respectful, and they repeatedly use the wrong words and they refer to stuff and they get caught up in bad memes that you're like, would you like me to tell you how this meme came from the KKK? Because I can Mm. tell you how this meme came from the KKK. And it's just things like that. Like that's the stuff that's so insidious. One of the things that when I started building Swordsfall, I really had this hope of not just creating a world that was like very diverse and and black centric, but also feeling like especially white men could come to it and not necessarily feel like they weren't welcome. I don't necessarily want to say that things that are non-majority are not welcoming, but sometimes I know that things have a tendency to feel like if you don't get it, then you shouldn't be here. And we have a tendency to be like, okay, I guess I won't be here because I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Me personally, I'm trying to kind of make it seem like, hey, there's an alternative way than just doing things in a Eurocentric way. You can do it in an Afrocentric way and it can still be cool. And so if people start going, oh, awesome. I guess I'll try to write Afropunk. I wouldn't be mad at like a white guy doing Afropunk. If anything, I'd be like, cool, yes, try it. But also be receptive to the fact that when you mess up, we're going to be like, that's not Afropunk. That's still Eurocentric. And just as long as they're willing to be like, oh, okay, and navigate that change, I'm all for it. The problem is always going to be is that the majority will never go away. And the majority is truly what determines the course of where things go. So as a minority, you kind of run this line where you know that no matter what you do, you will always still be the minority. You're just trying to get your thoughts in their head so that when they make decisions, they think, oh, my black friends would not like us if I did that. That'd be bad. My non-binary friends would be very mad at me. I should not do that. You know, and that's that's okay. Like sometimes you just need that voice in your head like your parents that are like, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. I feel like it's that simple, but that's kind of the hard part is it's just a everyday sort of thing. Absolutely. And you're doing a good job of keeping this on track. I appreciate that, even though it should be the interviewer's job to do that. But you're, <laughs> I keep going off on tangents. One final tangent. I'm curious, have you seen Dragon Prince on Netflix? Man, I keep hearing people talk about that. I'm probably going to put that on tonight while I finish up the Kickstarter page. Because at first I thought it was maybe just the kid version of Game of Thrones. But now people are saying Superman feels not kitty. So I'm... <laughs> I really enjoy it. The reason I brought it up is it's a very Eurocentric setting with racial inclusion. 
And they don't seem to really address it at all. It's just, oh, here's a world where extremely dark-skinned people interact with light-skinned people. They're knights. There's dragons. We're not even going to investigate that. I think there's a little bit of missed opportunity there. Like you're saying, all this fantasy stuff is very Eurocentric, and it's great to be inclusive, but also you want to include more than just faces. You want to include culture and experiences. Well, this is where I just have to say, I think mainly it's just a pure lack of education. And I don't mean that in like a mean way. Like if you think about it just in terms of schooling, like how much do you ever really read about any other culture besides Europe, Japan, and Aztecs, some Mexico, but Mm. a whole continent of Africa, and most people don't know anything about it. It's hard to be diverse when it comes to that if you've never been exposed to it. It requires them to go out of their way to do research and then hope that they understand the research in the right context. It kind of goes back to that this is why you have to have diversity, because there's a lot of times you just have to have someone who understands from that. One of the best things that I have is that for Swordsfall, my artist, Tumo, is from Botswana. When he creates art, it's not just, hey, can you create something that looks African? I get to go, hey, can you incorporate your actual culture to it? And he was super excited to do it because that's not something that gets to happen very often. And now that can become the model. So as people start seeing designs and stuff that are modern African designs, that starts bleeding into the American consciousness. So the next time someone makes their own dragon prints and they say that, oh man, I really want more than just Eurocentric, they don't just have to make it up. They don't have to look it up. They can go, okay, Afropunk. And now there's a whole fan art community and people have kind of pseudo divided it and it's broken off into the 18 subcategories that all art breaks into, you know? I really hope that happens. What initially got you interested in fantasy or sci-fi settings and tabletop gaming in the first place? Oh man, I think I just had that nerd bug. I feel like sometimes, like, you just find it. I just found myself gravitating toward fantasy novels as a kid. I was always, like, a big reader. I was that weird nerdy kid who, in fourth grade, I was reading Cujo because, I don't know, no life. (laughs) So (laughs) that kind of stuff. You know, Saturday morning cartoons, I just fell in love with that stuff from an early age, man. Transformers was my jam. I literally made my dad tape all of the episodes that came on in VHS, and I watch the crap out of them. So for me, I just kind of fell into it. Like the second I've always came across something like that, I was into it. And I got into tabletop in high school when a friend brought up D&D. And I was like, eh, I never really had any interest in it just because I necessarily wasn't in a, in a place where I was like anti-Eurocentric because I was too young to even understand what that meant. But it was definitely a, nothing about that sounds fun in like a sword and sorcery sort of way. But they brought it that, oh, we just started playing Vampire the Masquerade. And I'm like, oh, vampires? Said the 16-year-old kid, you know? Mm. Uh, Have you ever played Vampire the Masquerade or read, like, the old school books? I have not played that one. I've heard about it, but never had the chance. This is great. White Wolf is a bit on cancel now because of all the Zach ass stuff. But old school then, legit. Like, it's just the way the book was constructed, it was just dripping in story and lore and narrative. And not, like lore dump sort of way, which I really don't like how the D&D books, the old ones would do at least, where it was like a section. It was like, here's everything. But for Vampire Masquerade, it was very much about sucking into a story, started off a prelude about the substance of what it's like to have this secret vampire society that's just watching underneath. And the way that every clan had its own ethos and its own font, like it was just dripping in a world that felt like you could go to. And so even though in retrospect, the rules for Vampire the Masquerade 2nd and 3rd edition weren't that great. 
the lore and just the vibe of the world kept it going. And, you know, there's not too many games from that time period other than D&D that you can really think of, but D&D and Vampire the Masquerade just existed. D&D on its combat and Vampire Masquerade, honestly, in its lore. The books, I read them all. <laughs> I read the clan books like they were actual novels. Most of the material of Vampire the Masquerade, I never played. I got to maybe play two, three, four source books, but I owned like all 68 of them and I read them like novels. And that really got me into the thought of imagining this character and a storyline. And I was always the kind of dude who always loved coming up with like cool backstories, working with the GM. I was just always that kind of guy. As time went by, you know, you just kind of get into different games and you get into different game circles. And as things kind of kept getting more D&D focused, I definitely got to the point where I was really ready for different kind of games, you know. And from what I understand, that game system has a greater focus on role playing as opposed to mechanical aspects. Yeah, though it's weird because uh, you can almost see in retrospect how they wanted an alternate to the D&D system, but they still thought they had to keep it to dice rolls. So it's simple, you know, just adding your attributes and then your talents, but you just end up rolling eight to nine D10s. It just becomes kind of ridiculous. But <laughs> it really becomes about the story, you know, but it's, it was never a detailed combat game like Dungeons Dragons. You never do miniatures or anything like that. You're on chuck full of D10s, but the story, man, you know, and if you were the good group who really got into the meta of it, man, I played some huge, long, year-long campaigns that are still some of my favorites to this day. Yeah, it's fascinating how those memories can stay with you, where it feels like a real event. And to me, it ties so closely to playing imagination as a kid. When you were in elementary school, you'd go out into the playground or recess, and you would just make stuff up. And somehow we don't encourage those abilities anymore. But it seems such a universal thing that people enjoy and share. That one I agree with. I was lamenting with um, someone not too long ago that I feel like we've really hampered the use of imagination, except when it makes you money. And I feel like that's a shame because, yeah, I mean, that ultimately, that's really what you get into tabletop for is for that imagination. It's for that that role playing to be something else. It's like a movie, but you're interacting. You know, you get to decide what the main character does because you are the main character. Sure, you're in a group full of other people, but everybody's their own main character and everybody else is the side character, you know. The GM kind of becomes your living director. And if you have a great GM, then, hey, I mean, you're going through epic series and you're just doing crazy stuff and people are dying and living. And I feel like, especially nowadays with this weird mix of feeling alone yet connected, it makes role playing even more fun. Because now you don't have to worry about oh, I can't get everybody together, or I live in a small town, there's no one to play with. Well, I can get online and go, you know, roll 20. You can play on an anvil. You can watch live play, actual play. Critical Role keeps blowing up. That's actually what got me interested in D&D in the first place. I watched some live streams. And I'm curious, you mentioned the sword and sorcery aspect of D&D not appealing to you as opposed to vampires. But do you think that there was a greater stigma facing specifically D&D culturally? In some ways, because when you think about it, fantasy as a trope is very much white male savior. And D&D is the ultimate group of white male saviors, you know. So even when you're not going into it, trying to be that way, the game is essentially it. If you crack open D&D, you know, third edition, good luck trying to find a person of color in there, you mm -hmm. know. So and, and obviously people always say, well, it, you know, well, that was a time. I was like, yeah, that was a time. And that was why I played Vampire the Masquerade instead, you know, so... <laughs> 
Yeah. And they did make some attempts, which were not great, where they have a setting called Cholt, and at least oh, the first yeah. integration of it was real problematic. And, and that's what I was saying about the menu, where they kind of get it. They're like, we have to add diversity. And then they treat it like a menu. Can I get a number one? And you're like, okay, that's not what we wanted at all. Exactly. And what frustrates me is they just rebooted the setting, Cholt, and didn't include anyone of color, as far as I'm aware, in terms of building that world, which is a really missed opportunity. I think a lot of it just has to come down to being uncomfortable. I think because they don't really connect with people of color and they obviously probably don't have a lot in their design circle, they have to kind of feel afraid because, and you know, it's, it's so, this is so full circle because when you don't understand the needs of the minority because you don't have anyone there, everything you do is going to feel like a trap because you truly do not know what you're doing. So I'm sure they hear stories about, well, we tried to do this character and they didn't like it. I don't think they realize it, but there's this condensation of like, well, we tried to give you what you wanted. And it's like, no, we told you exactly what we wanted. You decided, no, you were going to choose to give us what you think we wanted. Mm -hmm. That comes with a consequence. I've had this conversation on World Anvil before with people who have asked me like about diversity. And I feel like it just goes back to either do your research or don't do it. And that doesn't mean don't do minority characters. It just means don't make them special characters. Just decide that on the cover, instead of a white guy, it's going to be a black chick. That's it. You don't have to give him some crazy, weird, Nubian background. It's just a black person instead of the default. And I think they forget that sometimes that's all we want to. We don't want everything to have to be a social message. There's plenty of times where I just want to watch something that just has a dude that looks like me. And that's it. I don't have to have a story with it goes back to being willing to pull in people when you want to be diverse and actually listening to them and being like, hey, what do you actually want? Because that's literally what I had. I had a conversation with a couple of my trans friends because since Swordsfall is fantasy, I always thought to myself, it's just a philosophy question. In a fantasy world, if you had gods and the ability to morph and change things, would you have transgender? Or would you just be able to go to your god and be like, hey, you fucked up. <laughs> you put me in your own body. Swap that. And it was just a question of, if I wrote that, would that disenfranchise, would that erase them? So I did the smart thing and I just bit the bullet and I messaged all my trans friends and I was super humble and I was like, hey, I hate to be this dude, but I'm going to be real. I'm thinking about this. Would this be offensive? Please do not be afraid to tell me this is stupid. And they were all super honest. And the answers I got were totally different than anything I ever would have imagined. And I'm glad I, I took the time to ask. Now, you also have to caveat... <laughs> You cannot use the, oh, I asked my one diverse friend as an excuse for something, but it's better than just not at all. I'm curious what that consensus was on the trans issue. That sounds like a fascinating question. Their opinion was that it was appropriate to have someone born as a certain gender and then realize that that is not what they wanted and then have their God change it. And then someone actually brought up to me that it would be a nice little quest, but that it would be nice if I basically contracted a trans person right as like a sort of a like a journey, like to figuring out that like who you are and if I'm your God and having that be changed that you are you in the most maximum way. It was the way that they worded it. I understood that there was like a sense of not saying that it was broken, but a sort of a, hey, I want to be 100% me, which requires these changes. It was a context thing. It was very interesting. Right. Yeah. Very delicate, too. And I think, as you brought up earlier, these tabletop games are very collaborative. And you can undergo these journeys in the context of the game where maybe if you're running the game, you're not ready 
to do all that research or you're just not aware of these perspectives, a player can help guide you down that pathway and you can really work together to explore these issues. Exactly. And that's why sometimes it's about having those options, those choices, because sometimes being inclusive literally just means not putting a cap on something. So by trying to make it clear that an area doesn't have people that all look one way, because I think that's one trapping that people do in fantasy where they go, well, these guys hate this whole group of race because they all do this. There's like a monolith to it. And cultures are never monolithic like that. And they're never monolithically bad or monolithically good. So when you do that, you automatically make the entire thing racist just by the act of doing it, even if you didn't mean to. To kind of bring it back to Sourcefall, I kind of actually poke at that a bit. I'm hoping that I can kind of create a story that kind of shows how insane it is to have something that's monolithically good or bad like that. I think people are starting to embrace that view of the world, too. Well, at least I hope that it's not this good, bad, binary. Do you have any different races in your setting or is it all different cultures? So it's all different cultures. There is no races. It's just all, I guess I'll put it like this. So especially in the context of the world, all the humans were created by their own deities. And so the deities, in essence, created them from the image of the original creator, which was Ivana. So because she was human and because she's literally sculpted as a black lady, in essence, all of the humans were sculpted based off of that. The cultures in themselves vary. I've always kind of hated in fantasy that differences have to be based on race and not just culture when really most differences are cultural and not racial. The different cultures are the difference, but they're all the same race, they're all humans, but the culture does change things because they are born from that God. So I have, they're not elves because it's not in the metahumans, but I have it to where the Karu, which are more forest, they're more kind of in tune with nature. They do present a few optional like sharp ears but like nothing ridiculous but i I just kind of want to have a sense of you have the gifts from your god your god had elven ears some of you have like little bits of that and that's all it is but you're still human i really hate that sense of well this whole group has to hate this whole group because they're a different race you see a lot of that homogeny especially in D&D fantasy all dwarves hate elves exactly it's just unanimous and there is some room to play against that but i agree that there's a strange tendency to use the fantasy races as sort of rough caricatures and never really develop them further which seems like such a wasted opportunity to me and it really is it's funny because anybody who's actually read Surfalm so they're thinking but you have that in your own world Because one of the main conflicts in my world is that you have the northern half, Garuda, has this beef with the southern half, Vinyata. Basically what I did is instead of it being like, they hate this race because of this race, or they're evil or they're evil. In the lore, dragons were just corrupted elementals. Basically this corruption god came, stole the elementals, turned them to dragons, and basically turned them back on the world. So to them, dragons are the ones who wanted to destroy the world. Well, one of the dragons remembered who he was. He was the earth elemental and turned back good and helped turn that tide of the battle. Well, he created his own people because he too wanted to be a part of it. However, Garuda never really got over the fact that they lost all of this to dragons, regardless of the fact that Varujan himself is no longer that. Because especially in cultural, it's rarely ever that it's a racial thing. Usually when there is cultural issues, which there is a thing, it's always about history. So I wanted to make it be about there's a reason why. It's not necessarily a good reason, but you understand why. But you can also understand why it's bullshit. And so I wanted to have that play where it's like, oh, 
Well, Hampton Land was destroyed by dragons. However, not that dragon. So that doesn't make sense. And then that sort of thing. When you start reading the novels, the characters themselves find themselves trying to understand that actions matter and that applying it correctly to the right people is what matters. You can't just hate an entire group because of the actions of one. There's consequences. So I feel like you can use it as long as you make it a moral battle and you show that there's consequences to doing that. And it's not just, oh, yeah, that's how it is. Plot conflict. (laughs) Right, right. And I think there's real world application of that where a lot of racism is just like a failure to understand people or hanging on to some historical context. And when you really look at it carefully, it's totally illogical. And even the idea of what do we settle on, five races? That seems utterly ridiculous to me. If you think about usually when racial context comes out, it's always because one person is trying to convince other people to hate someone. Mm-hmm. There's there's never an actual logical reason. It's always, you're mad, I'm mad, but we'll blame this guy. Why? Because he's dark. Yeah, come up with an excuse against that. And people are like, well, I don't know. I mean, I need some reason to not hate myself, so that works. And that's really the part that we kind of forget about. When you take away unreasonable hate, it's really hard to be racist. It's really hard to be sexist because you realize there literally is no reason. I think that's why you see when people live in a diverse area, a lot of those things go away. When you're separated and never have an exposure to different groups, people, cultures, you tend to be a lot more intolerant. We're very danger-focused as humans. There's a podcast I'm a huge fan of called Hidden Brain from NPR, and they have one episode, which I recommend anybody to check out. I'm trying to remember what the name of the title was. But it was in essence about how humans always decide things based on danger because we've realized that you can do something right a hundred times, but you only have to do it wrong once. So we're way more intolerant of anything that's dangerous. So we're always trying to figure out if things go in a danger column or a good column. And if that switches, if it goes to a danger column, then we just have such a negative reaction to it. There was an example that was like, okay, water is good, right? Roaches are bad. If you pour water on a roach, how much water does it take to make the roach good? The answer is usually none. (laughs) Okay. If you put the roach in water and you pull the roach out, is the water still good? No. Like we have this thing where bad overrides good overwhelmingly. And it's such a human thing. That's always why we can't escape the isms because the problem is like it's built into us. We really want to judge real quick. We're like, is this good or bad? 10 seconds to decide. And if you don't give people enough information to be like, okay, race and sex is never in the danger column. That's dumb. We have to teach that to ourselves because we will always decide, is this good or is it bad? Doesn't matter what it is. Choice paralysis is something that comes up a lot and is especially something that I think D&D exposed and why you see people shortening skill list and whatnot. Because when it comes to making a choice, we want to decide, is this a good choice or is it a bad choice? And I do not want to make a bad choice at all. I will make no choice rather than a bad choice. Now you're giving me 80 choices? Cool. <laughs> People have this whole thing in it. Like you have to have the information to go, okay, sure, I have 80 choices, but what do I want? Well, I only want these X things. Well, okay, 60 of those won't satisfy that. So that's not even an option. And that's the whole point of having diversity in your life so that when you have a situation, when something happens, you're not putting, oh, Black person bad because you know that, oh, well, that's never in the back home because that's not a thing. Then you treat them like a person and you go, okay, it's this person I have a problem with, not an overarching race or a gender, any of that BS. And it's just about understanding that and having that in your mind so that you can make 
better choices. It's like that parenting thing. I just want you to make better choices. <laughs> but it, re- it requires that teaching to be like, hey, you shouldn't take race into consideration on something that's negative or positive. It's just a fact. It's certainly hard to deprogram that when it's coming from all angles of society. One thing that people have helped me realize is failure is really a privilege. If you look at media, novels, anything like that, politics, white men can really fail constantly and get more chances. If you're a woman or a person of color, that's not always true. Yeah, yeah, failure is usually not an option. That's funny you say that because I was uh, talking with my girlfriend yesterday because for me, especially, I'm having a hard time because now that Swords Fall is starting to kind of pick up, it's this weird, oh man, people actually want to read this? This is weird. (laughs) But, you know, she was like, well, you work really hard at it. And I'm like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it was one of those moments where I had to realize that for me, I'm so used to realizing that whatever I want to do, I have to go maximum hard at it because that's the only way to get recognized. And it's this weird thing where it is a privilege to fail, but also I think that's where you get Black excellence. I feel like that's really where that comes from, that minority spirit, because you know that you're down, like you're already down two bases, you know? So you're going to have to work three times as hard that just sounds like a phrase, but that just means you get in the habit of you are always working hard. I feel guilty if I do not work on Swordsfall every day. I literally feel guilty in the pit of my stomach. And I'm like, get on there and do something. So I work on this every day and I have for almost a year because I know that if I want to get somewhere, that is my only option. But that also means that by the time you find out about Swordsfall, you're like, damn, what is he doing? This is crazy. And that's because like now you have to see that three times the work, but I did three times the work. So it's that weird catch-22. You just kind of have to remember that when you're POC or minority, you will have the odds stacked against you. But if you keep at it, you've worked three times harder than them. You truly have done three times the work, and you now have three times the work to show. You have three times the experience. It's like leveling up on hard mode. <laughs> yeah, or Goku training under high gravity. Exactly. I totally agree. And I've seen that where one of my closest friends... I grew up middle class and he grew up under less means and he is just willing to work way harder than I am constantly. And his work ethic is tremendous and I'm envious of that. And I think like you're saying, it's kind of a double-edged sword. There's benefits to it. And as long as you have a healthy mentality concerning that work ethic and don't drive yourself into the ground, you can get a tremendous amount done. And I think you already have with this project. I really am, man. I really had in my mind that I wanted this to be work. Like I, I joked a lot to my friends. I was like, the only way this doesn't work is if I die. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope this is something that like other creators here. I feel like sometimes the difference is how much are you willing to work for it? Like not to say that people are, are lazy. I don't want anybody to take that away from it. But, you know, there comes to a point where there's something nitty gritty you have to do where you have to sit down and be like, OK, I have to edit 150,000 words. That's going to suck. That's the nitty gritty. That's what's going to separate you from the other creator. The one who was like, Meh. I edited 50K and I ballparked the rest. And the person who was really like, no, I'm going to edit this and double edit it. How hard are you willing to work for it? Well, in treating like this is your chance. People aren't going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're not going to say, oh, I like his intention. I could see where this could go. They want to see something that's finished. And I think that's really something, especially speaking for myself, I'm kind of like, well, you see where it's going, right? And I got to get away from that and really polish what I'm doing. 
it's this weird thing where I've been trying more and more to look at what successful people are doing. And I look at like what people who are trying to be successful but didn't do. And then people who just failed. And I mean, obviously, like life is just crazy. Sometimes you just get lucky. I'm not a huge fan of that term, but sometimes there is just an element of literal right place, right time and your ability to capitalize on that. You kind of just have to develop in the dark for a while. Now that like sorts of all starting to get out there, people are like, oh my God, there's so much. And it's like, well, I've been working on it for a year. You just haven't really heard about it. It finally got to the point where it was like, cool, I have enough here. Let me shout it out, shout it out, shout it out. And I spent like two months trying really hard to be like, have you heard about Swordsfall? Have you heard about Swordsfall? <laughs> if you make sure that you have done some work before people hear about you, you kind of build your own library. And I've seen other novelists talk about that too, where building a backlog rather than letting people see it from day one. Because there definitely is a sense of fatigue where you've just seen something for so long that you're like, yeah, it'll, it'll be out, whatever. Versus it being like you still up and you're like, and I have six months worth of lore to read through. <laughs> Most people aren't going to read through my whole world anvil, but they'll look at it and be like, well, shit, there's a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot there. And then there'll be more and more in every day. And it kind of gives you that sense of momentum, that sense of, okay, this is going somewhere. This isn't just going to disappear in a month because you decided, oh, you got tired of doing it, which happens a lot. I think that creators forget that. The customers remember how many games, properties, novels, there was one or two, and then they just disappear. So people are always like, I like this, but are you going to finish a story? Are you going to release a second game? What are you going to do with it? So one of the things that I wanted to share with this was like, hey, like I'm in this for the long run, not just because of money, but because like I really love this project and I really, really, really want people to have this in their hands. And I think that shows. And what you're talking about is a critical lesson. Don't just release something and do it by the seat of your pants. Prepare. There's a huge benefit in spending the time to build it up before you start sharing it. I learned that with my podcast where I was trying to release it every two weeks and I had no backlog. I was too eager to start building an audience, start doing it. And there's a point where you just get exhausted and you have no room for error or cushion to fall back on. But if I had prepared episodes ahead of time, that wouldn't have been a problem at all. So I think I'm going to follow in your footsteps. And I find it really encouraging how dedicated you've been to this project. Appreciate it, man. For me, like I fell in love with it. I'm sure people say it a lot. Once I realized that, oh, this is my story. Afropunk sci-fantasy is it really a thing? If you Google it, it pretty much shows up with Swords of All. It's not really a thing. It was kind of free and be like, okay, there's no tropes I have to adhere to. There's no expectations I have to adhere to. I literally get to write whatever I want. On the flip side, if it sucks, it hella sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it was like almost a challenge to myself. And then as a nerd, I think Every nerd can kind of understand where you've sat there and been like, oh my God, why did they write this weird plot twist? Why did they write this character? Oh my God, I could have done better. For me, it was like, how many times have you talked shit on a game or movie about how you would do it better? This is your chance. So do it better. So sometimes for me, when I write Swords Fault to challenge to myself, it's like, cool, if you don't like that, then how are you going to fix it? Because you've been bitching about it. And if you can't fix it, then maybe you shouldn't bitch about it anymore. <laughs> it's just, okay, I want to do this. So each part of it's a challenge. It was like, okay, I want to have an exciting world. Well, the world itself was written a long time ago. I started writing the underpinnings of Swordsfall basically when I was like 17. Hashtag partially because of Vampire the Masquerade. It really did inspire <laughs> me in like a, a narrative way. I was like, man, I want to write cool, awesome worlds and and I was like that DM who like had to just world build. We never just played some of the shit from the book because I was like, 
book lore. We're going to do this, guys. And they're like, yeah. And you end up creating a whole game because that's just what happens, you know? Well, you really live in that world, too. When you're running a game like that, you're just constantly thinking about it, applying new experiences in life to create that world, to make it feel real. Research. Yep. You really, you truly almost do create a new game with each campaign, depending on how detailed you go. I just kind of write in shades, man. I started, you know, the whole world. I've read enough books where I'm like, uh, there's something missing here. And over time, I've realized it was because some of them write linearly. They write in terms of the book plot and they only build what they need to to support that plot. Anything else is just superfluous and it just falls away. I can understand that. But for me, it's like, okay, are you wanting to write a one shot or are you wanting to write a world? Because a world needs support. You don't have to waste your time with the whole 89 lineage of the kings for this place, which I feel like some people have a tendency to do, like those are the wrong parts. Like if I was to step into your world, what are the shoes? What do I put on my feet? You know, uh -huh. and like that doesn't mean you have to come up with the shoe brand. It just means you had to generally think of, OK, what's transit like? How do people get from point A to point B? And as you start doing that, you realize that, OK, I need to write about horses. What kind of horses? Blah. Who would even raise the horses? Blah. That doesn't mean you have to sit there and write out a detail. There's some stuff where it's just a line as I'm just building connections. I'm like, cool. This is what the horse would be. This would take care of the horse. How big would the city be? Because are we going to have cars in the city? Nah, no cars in the city. So it's going to be small. It's just if you start doing it kind of logically, almost like in a sim city sort of way, I mean, that's kind of how I outlined it. So as I go through it and I'm like, cool, what do I want to write about today? Which is generally what I do usually. I try not to hold myself to any sort of strict line. I used to at first and I found that I'd be like, I don't feel like writing this, uh, but I got to. It's in my line. When I stopped doing that, I just kind of felt it was one of the pieces. And as I put in pieces, it gets easier. So once I gave the name of a country, I was like, what do I call the forest land? Garuda. Cool. Mm, what's going to be in it? In like a very top down. And it just makes it so much easier. Because when you need to make new pieces, I don't have to make a new nation. All the nations are done. I don't have to make a new nation. I can just be like, okay, we need a city. Where is it at? It's in Garuda. And I can look at the map, which I made, and be like, it's in this section. Oh, well, this is the climate of this. So this is going to be a forest land. It's near this river. You build the pieces for your own world so I can world build on the fly. <laughs> I had a big Reddit post because I posted some art and people asked questions. And it's this weird thing with the stories in my head so much is there's a little bit where some of the questions I asked, I didn't have prepared written down, but I knew enough about the world. So when they asked the questions, I could be like, hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it would be this. And I find that freeing. And if anybody has read Stephen King's little novel about writing, he kind of hints at something like that, like really understanding that a world moves based on events and not just people. You know, I feel like we tend to get really obsessed with who's the hero and who's the person, who's the king. And those are great, but like they're there for the land to take over that land because they live in a place you know they're there because of this conflict between this people and this people before they were even born that's the shit that keeps going you know i think that's another great lesson especially for aspiring game masters or dungeon masters where you can get lost in the details so you're setting a scene for your players you see this castle with spires and flags pendants whipping in the breeze and a player will inevitably say something like well what's behind me What's the other direction <laughs> yep. from the castle? Uh, but what you're talking about is if you have this logic and context of the world, you can improvise a lot that makes sense in your world without having to come up with every detail ahead of time. And the players will improvise for you. 
Yeah, I've already noticed that people are already starting to put things together and they're already starting to put pieces into the world that weren't necessarily there. Through February, it's sort of on the Black History Month promotion, I did all 34 professions. And for 99% of people, they had never seen all the, actually, that's a lie, 100%. No one had actually seen all the professions, not even like my girlfriend or my editor. And some of them were still in my head, not written down. So everybody kind of got to see the full range of the professions. And people already started putting tic-tac-toes together. And someone asked me, do a toners and soul writs conflict? Because the toners are, I don't know why, I always get this image of like, the almost dark tower style like dude in the crisp hat i don't know why there's something about <laughs> that, that bad guy hat i'm like i want some way to put the bad guy hat in swords fall and have it be cool as hell you know what i mean but you know he's or they they're the ones who consider themselves revenge they get revenge for spirits who have died wrongfully or been murdered or something like that but they're not like kumbaya they're like oh you killed them the spirit so they think it can move on, you have to die now. Soul Ritz, they're the opposite in a weird way. They're kind of like necromancer librarians. They want to collect the lost souls and understand their story, and they inscribe them in books, and they make it sure that people understand what their history is. I can totally see how a reader can wonder about the conflict, but I hadn't even thought about that conflict yet. You know, So someone brought it up, and I immediately was like, oh, yeah, totally. One is there for vengeance, the other one is there for knowledge. The spirit's going to go to go away after it. So, of course, the soul would not like the atoner. And it was like it instantly, like, I saw a little subplot, you know, and I was the one who wrote it and I didn't even think about it. But the players did and they're like, or the readers, you know, and they're like, hey, what about this? And I hope that in the context of when the game comes out, that GMs will have the same name with their players where they're like, well, what about this? And so my goal is to always have it to where even if I didn't specifically say it, I can give you enough tools and enough context where you can comfortably be like, I think it's this and really feel good about that. That kind of conflict is great for players. If you have one player playing one profession and another the other profession, as long as you're not combative about it in game, you can explore these nuances philosophically. How are they approaching the dead? Can they work together or are they always in conflict? Things of that nature can be fascinating to play out. Well, it's actually part of the game mechanics. You're about to get an exclusive because I don't think I've really detailed this to anybody. So one of the things in the actual tabletop game part of it is motivations. And it's something similar people have seen in other games where your character, you either pick or roll one off the table, but it's your motivation and there's, there's different motivations. Your most desired thing, you know, the thing you hate, you know, basically your motivations in life. And then so part of the game mechanics is resolving your motivations. And then so if your motivation conflicts with someone else, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to kill them. But part of the experience is going to be resolving that and how you resolve that. If you are diametrically resolved and cool, there might be some real conflict. But if both of you manage to clear motivations as part of the XP system. That's great. I think anything baked in to encourage that, where if you play tabletop games, especially at, say, a game store, you're going to run across some player tropes where, say, they're, they're playing a thief rogue. You see this character, almost every table, they always want to steal stuff from party members. Drives me. <laughs> it's a, oh, I came up with this novel idea. My thief wants to steal stuff from everyone. They're a klepto. And it's not even a character, really. It's just sort of a hollow activity that players seem to lean towards. Those kind of dynamics can cause real conflict with everyone else. 
And you have to, as players and the game master, find ways to approach those that are collaborative and not just antagonistic, where the game will start to have all this resentment and problems and generally fall apart. And that's where I say about putting the tools together. Because as a DM, I've dealt with the murder, thief, backstabby rogue all too often. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I was like, okay, how do I corral your min-maxers and your murder hobos without clubbing them over the head, which is usually people's solution. And, and that's not really fun. And they're like, you know, because there's a need for those kind of characters too. You just don't want them to run your game into the death. Instead of basically saying that, well, there's alignment or whatnot, and this kind of goes along with the more African vibe of the world itself. There's no currency in the game. There's no gold because I hate gold. I hate bookkeeping currency. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> so instead, think of it as like a three-pointed triangle. Respect, sway, connections. How it works is respect is kind of what it sounds like. It's just a measurement of how the community or the individuals feel about your character your profession gives you either bonuses or negatives to respect because some professions are more respected than others. I feel like that's a very real world thing, you know, and you know that when you're making a character. If you're making a land raider, which is more or less a rogue, they start with negative respect. You know that. They raid shit. I feel like it's not a negative. You understand that. But it also means that by default, if you go with the more roguey one of those professions, you're going to start off with less respect. And because that's how people treat you, you're automatically going to start with people treating you differently. So sure, you're like, okay, you can be a rogue and be sneaky and that's fine, but that means people are automatically not going to trust you less, which means they're going to be less likely to give you information. It means that they're going to haggle you more because since there's no gold, if you want to buy something, you have to use what's called sway. And so how I tell people to think about it is respect is what people think about you. Sway is what they would do for you. You don't have to respect someone to have sway, but it can help. You know, and it's just that weird vice versa where you can respect someone and have no sway over them and have no respect for them and have a lot of sway. And so that's kind of how that works. So it's like if you're going to be a rogue and you're going to run around stabbing, taking stuff, you're not going to have a lot of respect, which means that when it comes time to deal with someone and try to use sway, you're at a negative. So either you have to roll like a pro or you have to start trying to figure out how you're going to get those things with the way your character acts. So it's either, okay, do you want to start being more respectful and getting more respect to start getting that? Or are you going to take a different route? Because there's always some sort of shadow organization that has respect for the Skullduggery. So I want it to be more of a cool, if you want to be that character, the world's going to respond to you in a logical way. And not just the GM being a dick to you because you're being a dick. It's going to be like, cool, you stole something from them. That's a lack of respect. They're also connected to these people. Guess who you have a rival with who wants to come after you? That kind of thing. And I feel like as long as you try to put it back into the game so that it becomes a game mechanic rather than a punishment or you just can't do this or if you do this, there's too many negatives to make it worthwhile. And I'd rather be narrative. That's great. I really like how you're integrating that mechanically. Too often with this murder hobo rogue, they rarely take everything into context where to me, the fundamental question is, so why would anyone else ever travel with you? Exactly. Why would you ever have friends? Yeah, exactly. And the answer is usually, uh, I don't know. That's not enough for me. You got to come up with a reason to be part of this group. And I think your system is great at fostering those kind of relationships and those bonds. I was trying to tie it back in the lore because I feel like especially one of the reasons why it's so easy to be murder hobo is in a game like D&D, what is a rogue? 
they've made it quite thematically that all a rogue means is someone who just steals shit and sneaks around. By essence, they pretty much tell you if you're a rogue, you have to be a dick. There's no lore to it unless you go looking for stuff. And so that's why instead of calling them classes, I called them my professions and I really made sure that they were tied to lore. There's no just profession of running around being a dick. If you want to run around and steal stuff from people, you're just a dude running around stealing. Cool. But if you pick the land raider profession, which is basically roguish, or like a corsair, which is a pirate, they are essentially what you would think of as a rogue, but they have lore context. Like land raiders are not land raiders because they're giant mobile bands of Mad Max style raiders. They're mainly ex-orphans and kids on the fringe who are trying to figure out a way to survive. And they've really tapped into a sense of learning to disappear in a crowd, learning to throw their voice and look like other people. And there's more of a street stealer merchant because in a world, you can't just run around being a murder hobo. You can. It'll be very short-lived because other anti-murder hobo people will come looking for you, which I feel like players forget. You can be a murder hobo, but there's always someone who will make a career off of murdering murder hobos. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> so it's like always like a, a natural chain of events to those things. And I should say, I was also the kind of GM because I just had the luck of I always had like two or three min-maxers. And I used to try to do it heavy-handed and be like, well, you can't have that and you can't have that. And it just made it no fun for them. It made it no fun for the group. So instead, I tried to make it sort of a lesson. Like, sure, you can do those things, but they have consequences to it. And I pretty much have done this every game that I've ran for the last like decade. Whenever people make their characters, Batman is my favorite comic hero, by the way. This is a very Batman thing to do. Mm. Whenever they make their character, I sit down and I make an enemy that would do nothing but murder them. Like their exact total opposite. Whatever their weaknesses are, that's who would exploit them. I didn't tell them what their nemesis was. I never even told them they had one. It was just in my pocket. And it was a sort of, if you go over the line, this is the person who's going to have something to say about it. And I only had to use it once or twice. And it was just so effective. Someone was like, what? Because I made like a villain that was connected to their story, to what they were doing, and was prepared for who they were. And it was something that they were surprised by. It's funny to watch other people in, in the party be like, that's what you get for being a murder hobo. And the murder hobo being like, what? There's consequences for being a murder hobo in the game? <laughs> I like the, by being so effective, you're creating an opposite, kind of in the vein of the Dark Knight where the Joker wouldn't exist if this vigilante wasn't running around fighting crime. I think exactly. that's a fantastic way to frame it. And that's one of the things that I'm building into the game as well, is a sort of nemesis rival system, which obviously exists, but I wanted to tie more to the character's actions. So I'm still kind of developing and seeing how I don't want the game to be super chart heavy. I think that in some cases, charts are nice in case of a I don't have the imagination to come up with right now. It's way easier to look at a chart and be like, cool, that's the option I like. But I just want to make it clear that a lot of these things are optional. If you don't want to use a chart, don't use a chart. But I added it in there because sometimes you don't have time and sometimes you're lazy. And I want to support that. I think there's also benefits to not being so restrictive. So in D&D, &D, there's the alignment system, which is an access of good to evil, lawful to chaotic. And often you'll see players who pick an alignment and then they rigorously adhere to it. No matter what kind of inputs the DM is giving them, what kind of story moments have happened, they're just, no, I'm set in stone. This is who my character is. 
And that kind of all leads back into why it's just so easy to sometimes accidentally make a bad character. Because, you know, like with D&D, alignment can be hard. What sounds like a fun alignment at the time may not be fun as the story progresses. It's the classic, sure, it sounds awesome to be a paladin. Like, I'm good. I'm the bastion of good. Cool. We're at a point in the story where you really, really, really want to be a dick. And it would be really appropriate for being a dick. But your alignment makes it seem like you can't. So as a player, you either feel like you're just throwing your character out the window and doing whatever you want, or you try to adhere to alignment and have no fun. And I feel like that's the trappings of the alignment system and why it's like loved and hated at the same time. And also it's just hard. Like no one is all good or no one's all bad. In philosophy, we always made the joke about how the problem is that people forget that Hitler himself had best friends. I'm sure someone right before was like, oh, that Hitler, he was a cool guy. Like, you're, no one is all bad and no one's all good. Some people just do really bad things and some people do really good things. An alignment system never adheres to that. And it never adheres to the fact that people grow or they decay. And you kind of either have to have a game that either has an alignment system that's flexible or you just don't have it in there so that people can kind of go along with where the storyline is going or where their character is going, you know? I'd like to see a character who maybe starts off as he's a curmudgeon, he doesn't like people, but he learns to like the group. Those make for fun campaigns, and alignment sometimes gets in the way of that. you enjoyed that interview. It's a bit of a change of pace from our usual fare, but I found it fascinating. And I think Brandon is doing some important things to help foster inclusion in a space that has been pretty homogenous. Join us in a week or whenever for the second part of Brandon's interview. (laughs) 